Uh, I fought all night with it, and the engineer tried to make it steam. Nobody could make it steam. 150, 160 pounds is about all you can get on it. Thank you for tuning in to High Green, the official podcast of the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society. High Green is funded by your membership in the Society, and any opinions expressed throughout the show are solely those of the owner. As always, if you'd like to learn more about our organization or join us, you can find our website, www.bmrrhs.org. Perhaps this story hasn't been told in B&M circles, but it's it's a B&M story and it's a good one. Oh my God, he says, I don't think I ever saw a train down here before. (laughs) He was amused. I still have that wanderlust. I still want to go back rowing. If you're looking to do some Boston and Maine research, finally read that long-lost article of the B&M Bulletin, or just find some good reading material, we have you covered. Now available for purchase in our online store are individual digital issues of our famous publications, the B&M Bulletin and the Modeler's Notes. Society volunteers have worked hard to scan and upload this catalog of material consisting of 50 years of amazing knowledge. As hard copies of many of these issues are now difficult to find, this will help ensure that the knowledge will always be at your fingertips, and perhaps that issue you've been looking to add to your collection you'll be able to find here. You can head on over to the digital media section of our online store, where you'll find free indexes of both the Modeler's Notes and the B&M Bulletin. Those detail the issues, when they came out, and what articles were inside. From that information, you can then page through the various issues available and hopefully find the ones that you're looking for. And with that, we'll head into today's episode of High Green an oral history recording from 1987, recorded by Lloyd McNair, who was a former Boston and Maine employee for many years. McNair talks about his time on the Boston and Maine starting in the early 1940s and heading up into the mid-1950s. He worked as a fireman and occasionally as an engineer on the Con River line and the surrounding area of the Boston and Maine system. We hope you enjoy, and as always, thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. September 21, 1942, I think it was on a Monday morning, I went to work in Springfield on a switcher with Bert Lance for an engineer, Walter Arms for a fireman teaching me how to fire. This is a small 060 switcher, I think the engine was number 401 if I remember correctly. And of course being anxious, I showed more coal than necessary. The first day was quite revealing, so the following day they, I was called for the other morning switcher, which uh, that took morning, I think they had the Nehaven 080 3415 engine with Walter, uh, with Walter McCormick for engineer and Jim Frost for fireman. And then I had four student trips on the uh, turnaround freight from Springfield to East Deerfield. 2656 K8 engine, and of course the firemen that were teaching me how to fire, the hand-fired engine, they were teaching me how to fire, and some of them hadn't been around only a week or so, so it was the blind leading the blind, but we got along pretty well, 
in the fourth trip north to East Deerfield, I was told to get off and go to the YMCA and take rest and report in the morning for 7.20. I was the number of the train. Joe Peach was the engineer. We had a, I think it was the 1493 mogul on a short fashion train, three wooden coaches. Bob Shaw was a fireman. And I had a couple trips, one from Northampton, uh, one from Greenfield to Springfield, and one from Springfield, Northampton, Northampton, Springfield, and then I was qualified and I marked up on the spare board. I wasn't marked up too long, probably not over two weeks at the very most, and I don't remember any particular incident, but I notified you were cut off the board, which meant that I was laid off. And I had the choice then of going to Mechanicville, New York, or East Fitchburg to mark up as a spare man there. And after thinking over a short while, my wife and I thought it over. I decided to go to East Fitchburg and mark up there. So, first night, uh, they let me stay in the bunk room of East Fitchburg. And then they said it was too crowded, and uh, if you were going to be marked up there regularly, you had to get a place to stay. So I got a room in the American House Hotel and it was a kind of a flea bag, as I remember it. And they called me the first night to fire a switcher, and I had a choice of a diesel or a steam engine, and not having had much experience, I took the steam engine so as to gain experience. Well, the following night, I was called a, as a helper to the 10th section, which meant a K-8 engine to help with the Boston of Bellows Falls freight job as far as 10th section, which is between Keene and Bellows Falls, and come back. Well, the 2656 that I broke, off, broke in on in Springfield had been transferred to East Deerfield and probably repairs made and sent to East Fitchburg as their K-8 engine. So uh, having fired it, I still, I figured I would have it made, but uh, I fought all night with it, and the engineer tried to make it steam. Nobody could make it steam. 150, 160 pounds is about all you could get on it. And we helped the train up the hill as best we could from East Pittsburgh up through Ashburnham and up on the Cheshire branch. And at Keene, when we took water, we swapped engines 
they swapped places with the engines, put the the engine I was on ahead. As soon as they get over the summit, my prearranged signal or something of the kind, they cut off the engine I was on. We run down the, the mountain, or I don't know how far. I was only over there there once. We got into siding, and the train went by us. And after they went by, we went back to East Pittsburgh Light. And then the following trip, I was a day or so later, I got called to fire the a big tank in Lima. I forget it was probably the 40, uh, as I remember, the 4019 or 4024, and I never saw one before. So they called another fireman to fire it, and he had never fired one, but he had fired Stoker, so he thought he knew how to fire it, and, he, and we, between the two of us, we finally got the thing that mechanics in New York, but I don't know how, and I still wonder how many times the engineer died a thousand deaths with the kind of fireman he had to make the steam for, so he could make that train, get that train over the road. When we get into Mechanicville, we were ordered to deadhead home, so we we got a bus from Mechanicville to Troy, and then trained from Troy to East Pittsburgh, and we got back to East Pittsburgh, I marked up, and then the next morning, after I had my rest, I called up and I wasn't going to get out that day, and I was very much disgusted with my railroad and career, so I ordered him to mark me off. I was going home. So I got the next train out of Fitchburg to Greenfield, Greenfield, Springfield. My wife picked me up, and I was thoroughly disgusted with railroad, and I wasn't not going to live like that away from home. If I called the Springfield engine house to find out any information I might, and the caller told me that the fireman's spare board was exhausted. And if I was going to be around in the morning, he probably could give me a job. So in the morning, he called me, and I got called for a work train. And I worked 16 hours that day. And he asked me when I got in that night if, if I was going to be around. I said, yes, I'm going home and have some sleep. So the following morning, he called me for the Chickabee Switcher. At that time, there was only one Chickabee Switcher running. And they always worked 14, 15 hours a day, which we did that day. When I came in that night, he told me, you were marked up. So that was, I went back on the railroad, on the, east, on the Springfield Spare Board, and that was the only time I was ever cut off the board. When you were first marked up on the Spare Board, you were restricted from fire, firing any through trains, stokers or hand-fired or otherwise. You just fire the locals or the freights, uh, locals or the uh, switchers. Well, many times during this period, when there was ever a, any great delay on Number track train number 78 out of White River Junction. They had to call a crew because, on account of 78 being a commuter train from Greenfield to Springfield. If it was going to be over 15 minutes late, they had to. They always called a, a crew so as to put the train on time.
Well, you can call around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning and report Springfield. Now, usually they give you a Pacific-type engine and two coaches, and you run light to Greenfield, go around the Y, East Deerfield, back to Greenfield, and then be ready to leave Greenfield at 10 minutes to 7 in the morning. Well, that is a very busy job. You make all the stops from Greenfield to Springfield, and uh, listing the stops, you go leave Greenfield at 10 minutes to 7, and you'll stop at Old Deerfield, South Deerfield, Waitley, North Hatfield, Hatfield, occasionally Laurel Park, Northampton, Mount Tom, Holyoke, Riverside, Willamancet, Chickabee, Brightwood, and Springfield for 8 o'clock in the morning. Now that was a very busy job because there's so many stops and you were carrying green signals most all the time you would run his first section of 78 and uh, you'd carry green flags and green lights and each time you passed a section man or a junction point or a section house or a track patrol or anybody that had anything to do with trains you told the engineer or if he didn't if he didn't see him or he saw them and he whistled a long and too short whistles on the whistle so that they would know there's a that you were the first section and there's another one due any time after that on the at on the same schedule. Sometime that fall, I of course hadn't been around only since September, but sometime I would think probably before, just before Christmas or in that vicinity, I get called one night, show up for 7.33, which was the Montreal Express. And I was quick to notify the dispatcher, I'm not qualified. And he says, I'm well aware of it. I notified Greenfield. I had nobody, only you on the board. And they told me to send McNair along and do the best he can. Well, I don't remember particularly the engine, but Eddie James was the engineer. And we were probably 30 minutes or so late out of Springfield. And uh, he coached me along a little bit. Once in a while, He, would, when I was anxious to shovel coal, he'd say, wait a minute now, there's a curve here, so I could catch a signal for him. And uh, we got along pretty well. I kept it hot all the while. One of his earliest pieces of advice was don't wait too long between fires. So I took him at his word and I shoveled coal whenever I thought it needed it and a lot more than I really needed, but I didn't know that, of course. And when we got to White River Junction and went to the bunk room to uh, put up for the night, I was peeling off my clothes and I was soaking wet underneath my jumper and overalls from probably nervousness, although it was a cold night and there was snow on the ground, but it was quite cold. Well, his regular fireman had been called to instruct somebody in the operation of a stoker. And he was in the, already in the White River. And he really gave that man a, quite a, a razzing for 
bringing his firemen in soaking wet. And the others in the bunk room did likewise. They thought it was a big joke and that uh, I'd come in there all soaking wet. But it was not a bit funny as far as I was concerned. So it, was, it must have been a Saturday night because on a Sunday they always had a, a stoker. And I realized that somehow or other, I had gotten wise enough to that, that Sunday they had a big train, so they had a stoker-fired engine. And I says to the engineer, uh, I said, I'm assuming that tomorrow, going down, you'll have a stoker. And he says, I presume you're all qualified. And I says, I never saw one, never mind being qualified. But anyways, they, they got a, a regular fireman that lived in White River Junction there, one of the older firemen, and they used him as an instructor for me. And that's uh, one of that was the first trip, first trip north of Greenfield. I was called one night along with my father-in-law Lester Lester Hill. He was the engineer, and we were called to Deadhead to Keene, New Hampshire. Which meant go out on the bootlegger, deadhead on the bootlegger, Springfield to Bellows Falls, wait for train, go from Bellows Falls to Keene, and run the Sunday passenger train. Ordinarily, they would have a gas car, a gas electric car on there, and it was broke down, and they had a, a steam engine in in Keene from that was on a freight train, which uh, put up there. So they're going to use the engine that day to in place of the the steam of the gas electric. They had a spare coach here, so when it comes to time to leave, somewhere is in the neighborhood of 10 or 10:30 in the morning, leaving Keene to go to East Northfield. The engine had a steam connector on the rear end only, and in order to heat the train, they had to have the steam connector. It was a cold day snow on the ground, probably put a snow there about. And they decided to run the engine normal, going to Keene, going from Bellows Falls, Keene to Bellows, Keene to East Northfield. And then they would stay on the train at East Northfield until it was ready to go back to Keene, and then they would cut off and go back to Keene without steam, without heat on the train. So that's what we did. We made two round trips that day from Keene to East Northville, and then we put up and waited for the afternoon job, and then went down to Keene to East Northville again, then from East Northville back to Keene. And it was a pretty cold trip running backwards, but there was nothing else you could do. The engine was too long, too big to put on the turntable at East Northville. So that's the way we run the train that day. Well, when we got back to Keene, we deadhead. We wait for a train to deadhead from Keene to Bellows Falls, and then waited from train, waited for the southbound Montreal to, to go from Bellows Falls to Springfield, and we were out of Springfield roughly 26 hours with very little, if any, rest. And that made a long, long trip, and it was a long, cold trip. I haven't any specific dates for some of these stories because I cannot find my time books from 
my hiring out until 1945, so I got practically three years, a little over, just a little over three years that I can't account for any particular dates on these stories. But somewhere along the line, and I never heard it used anywhere else, they use the term a rubber boot. You speak of a man as being a rubber boot. And the only place I ever heard it used was on our division, and I don't know who originated, but if the man was called a rubber boot, he was either a poor fireman, a poor engineer, or a poor brakeman, or he, he just didn't know what he was doing. So that was a rather derogatory term. You hear a man say, well, he's a rubber boot. Well, I'm not saying that this particular next story is the man was a rubber boot because he was a real gentleman, and somewhere along the no specific date that I can put my finger on, I was firing 73 and 728. <laughs> it's a regular job, and the regular engineer laid off, and I caught this nice old man, deaf as a stone post an engineer. And he had the 3688 Pacific type engine and it had a pe peculiar way of acting when it was running at high speed. It would kind of shudder all the while. But if it didn't get it up there to that point, it would chew the fire all the bits and burn more coal, almost more coal than you'd put in it. Well, this particular day, we had this engine and this man, as like a good many more of the spare engineers, or most all of them, matter of fact, they were laid off. Some of them were laid off 18, 17 years. And they just got back to work, maybe worked a few months as firemen, and immediately got set up as engineers when the, the wartime came along. So this man, having lacking experience as an engineer, uh, he'd forgotten all he knew before, and then when he came back to work, it was uh, another story all over again. So he was using the engines very severely, and I was shoving more coal, much more coal than necessary. But I, anyways, we got to Balabar, our regular water stop. And ever I got up and looked in the tank, and ordinarily you would have, you would only used uh, slightly more than a third of a tank. Less, at least less than half a tank. And Dallas, when I, the battle barrel, when I was taking water, it was down two-thirds of a tank, which was an excessive amount of water on the same run. Well, I got back on the engine and leaving after we leaving town, I went across the cab to him, and I asked him if he would kindly hook that engine up. And I told him what had happened, how much coal was using, and uh, was using excessive coal and excessive amount of water. And typical admission was, yup, 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 we'll see what we can do. Well, he hooked the engine up short, and I kept telling him shorter and shorter. And it got to the point where it had this peculiar motion to it, which I recognized from working with, with a, re a good engineer, a regular man. But he, he wasn't using throttle enough. So 
between Brattleboro and Bellows Falls, he lost time. And that made me mad, too, thinking he didn't have sense enough to give it more throttle. And leaving Bellows Falls, he recognized that he wasn't doing quite right yet, so he used more throttle. And we went into White River on time. And, and when we get to White River Engine House, Westboro Engine House, he apologized very profusely for using me so hard when it wasn't so wasn't necessary, and he asked me if I would please feel free to tell him any time he wasn't doing it right. He said, I'm only a boy at it, and he said, I'm lacking experience, and you, you being at it every day with a good engineer would know what to do. I've been on the railroad about a year, and I couldn't, I didn't like the spare board. On being on call, I never could sleep well, never could eat. My stomach was on fire. So out of desperation, I put a bid in on, and was awarded a mechanical job, Springfield Mechanical. The job uh, had about nine or ten hours in Springfield and twenty hours in Mechanicville. But I couldn't help it. I I wanted something with regular hours I could eat and sleep regularly. Well, it was quite a revealing experience good many times and various things. Leaving Mechanicville, you got about a mile to get your fire going properly, and then you're right into a heavy hill for a long ways from Mechanicville to Johnsonville, and then the taper's off, and Mechanicville to North Adams, ordinarily with a tonnage train, it take you an hour and 45 minutes. If you had a, if you get into trouble, you get your fire messed up, you might be a good deal longer. Well, this particular day, we were leaving Springfield rather, rather than the other end of the line, and we left Springfield with notification uh, that we would pick up our train at Holyoke. We had just the caboose. The switcher took the caboose off at Holyoke put it on a train they had all lined up for us, which is was a, a supply train out of out of Westover. It had men and trucks and tanks and all kinds of gun equipment in gondola cars and a complement of guards. I don't remember how many particularly, but uh, six or eight men, which they had a big caboose, and they were permitted to ride there. But 
every they're supposed to change the guard every hour on the train. It was a cold, cold night, probably around ten, between ten and eleven zero. And those men are out in them open gondola cars, watching that equipment. Things were being pretty well guarded. So our ordinary water stop would be Northampton and East Portal. It seems how we had this bigger train than usual. The engineer says to the brakeman at Northampton, when we're taking water, tell the dispatcher in Greenfield that we want water at Greenfield as well. And the dispatcher come back, or the brakeman come back and says the dispatcher says, call me from Russell Street, Greenfield. Well, at Russell Street, Greenfield, the signal was red. Brakeman went up ahead to the telephone, and he come back and says, when you get the signal to go, you get your water somewhere up the tunnel line. You can't get it here. Uh, the engineer was a very peculiar bird. He did not like to be crossed. And I didn't think anything of it until we went by Shelburne Falls, which there is a water plug, there was a water plug there. And as we went up near Charlemont, the engineer left the controls and went back over the tank through the coal pile, looked at the water, and he come back, he says, we, we'll have to have water at Charlemont. He pulled up to the Charlemont water plug, made a spot, and I went up to the tank to take water, and the water didn't run. It was froze, big long icicles all over the tank, all over the place. The water wouldn't run. I tried and tried, and finally I come back and I says, the water plug must be froze. So he went up and tried it. And next thing he says to Brakeman, tell the dispatcher we got to have water. What will we do with the train? And Brakeman come back and says, back your train off in the middle at Charlemont. Go to East Portal, get your water, call up. And that's what we did. So we went to East Portal, got our water, called up, and got permission to go back. And in the meantime, the train had been sitting there in the cold, cold weather. And the guides have been out there in that severe weather. And we started out a Charlemont to go to East Portal with the train. We had to stop and line up the switches behind us. And uh, just about keep going. Slip, 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 slip. If we tell the dispatcher we've got to have coal. Well, there's no coal facilities in North Adams or B&M, so they had to get the B&A. B&A had a coal tipple there, but they had a lousy coal. Well, anyways, they finally got permission. We went over in the B&A and got some coal. And it was, in my honest opinion, pure cantankerousness all the while, just because you could not get water at Greenfield. If they let him get water at Greenfield, we would have been a mechanical before we even got these portals. But no, that was not 
going to be not, not possible. I stayed in this job probably about nine months, and I got pretty much my fill of it. And rather than fight with a man or turn him in or do something foolish, I bit off a midnight switcher in Springfield to get rid of the job so I would not have to work with him. I was on the 1030 switcher probably two or three months, and the 73 and 728 bid, and I had no idea that I'd ever get it, but I put a bid on it, and I got the job. And uh, many others were surprised besides me, but I held on to that job quite a long while. I wouldn't, I think well over a year before somebody else took it away from me. But I have a date here in 1945, uh, July 13, 1945, I had had quite a bit of experience uh, on 73 and 728 with a good engineer. And this particular day, my regular engineer, Frank Waters, laid off, and Bill Haggins had caught the job. And he's another one of these engineers that had been laid off so many years. And when he, when he came back to work, uh, he was living at Bellas Falls, so he bid off uh, Bellas Falls Switcher or Bellas Falls Local, so he'd be at home, which I don't blame. And then uh, he'd been laid off so many years, he he really didn't know the road, and he got set up as an engineer, and he was quite at a loss. But he caught this job with 73 and 728 with me, and we had 3679 for an engine, and it was a, and now a, a good engine, kind of difficult fire, burn excess coal, and I got the surprise of my life when we got to Northampton, going north on 73, he says, uh, here, take it to Greenfield. He never asked me if I ever ran a train or if I, anything of the kind, and I was quite self-confident, so I but over there and I ran the train and he fired it. He was probably a man of 60 years old or more then and he fired it from Northampton to Windsor. And uh, I would watch Frank Waters run that job. I'd fired it for him so many times. I watched him and knew where he worked the engine, where he drifted, where he put the brake on, and the spot stopped for four cars or five cars, six cars, whatever we might have. So at Windsor, he took it and ran it in the White River, and on the way back, same thing. When he got to Windsor, he said, here, you run it to Northampton. Well, ordinarily we left White River with usually five cars, and sometimes up Bellows Falls, or pick up a baggage car ahead, and then Brattleboro, pick up a baggage car ahead. And in Greenfield, they cut off the in, cut the engine off, go down the yard, and the switcher put on cars. Well, I don't know what. Remember, particularly sometimes we had as many as 15 cars in the Springfield, and the five rear cars were the only ones working. The rest were all deadheads ahead. Uh, they were loaded baggage cars or empty baggage cars, but nobody working them, just the, the five rear cars were working. And I can still see myself sailing into Northampton there at 60 miles an hour.
And I knew just where Frank put the brake on for the first brake application, and then where he let it off, and then reapplied the brakes where he stopped for 10 cars, 12 cars, and I went down and made a stop, and I never looked back once. And Bill Haggins was rather concerned that I was going to go too far by. So when I got out of the seat so he could take over Northampton to go to Springfield, he looked back and he says, By gosh, Mac, he said, you put them right where they belong. I says, That's right. To give a little background to this so you understand what I'm talking about, 73 and 728 was a regular run. And you go to work at 8.30 in the morning in Springfield, and the train would leave at 9.30. You had to be to work one hour ahead of departure time. You get to White River about 1.15, and then you go back to work around 5.30 at night, thereabouts, and leave at 6.30, and into Springfield 11.15, 11.20, and then you was off the next day. So you, you get about two and a half days one day, and then off the next. Well, Frank Waters and I really enjoyed that job together. He was a rather hard man to get to know. After we got acquainted, we used to have some very good times together. And somewhere is not too long before this incident that I'm going to tell you about, I had learned to, to fire a, an odd way. This man, an old older man, hired out as an experienced man from the North End New Hampshire Division. And he lived down, he was working in Northampton, our local at the time. And for lacking something to do, he walked, he got on the train and, and rode from Northampton to Greenfield, and then he was back on 728 from Greenfield to Northampton. So this particular day, he got on the engine in Northampton at Greenfield and asked if he'd have a ride down. And he's talked with the spare man that particular day, and he says to me, "You, uh, I'll sit up there. You, I'll spell you." And he was a kind of a sh small, thin man, and he looked at the fire. And we sat around there, and he talked to the engineer and, and me. And we got to leave Greenfield, a pretty good-sized train. He put a shovel or two in it, and he'd go and talk, and put a couple more in. He didn't seem to put any coal in at all compared to what I would. So as we were approaching Northampton, before he got off, he says, uh, uh, you want to take a look at your fire and see what I've done? See if you, I spoiled your fire for you? Well, I looked in there, and my heavy fire, uh, I always considered heavy, was burnt down flat, almost as flat as a table, with a little bit of coal across the back end of the firebox, and it was a real smart, nice looking fire. And I said to myself, if he can fire it like that, I can. So the following trip, I told my regular engineer, Frank Waters, about it, and he says, well, just go ahead and try it. So I had his permission. He was being more tolerant as long as he knew what I had in mind. And I would try to fire that way, and the steam would start going down a little bit, get back 20 pounds or so, and I would go back to my old way of firing and bring the steam back up to 200. And after a few trips, I got so I could fire like that. 
Well, sometime later, uh, this particular story is November 12, 1945, the engine 3677, and I had learned to put one of these, how to do this particular way of firing. So I left a very light fire on the grates, probably probably four or five inches at the very most, the fire on the grates, but at all level except across the back there's a, a heavy helium, you might call, bank backed up against the back side of the firebox. We were coming on 728, left Greenfield, and the engine seemed to be steaming particularly easy compared to what it ordinarily would. And I had the, the, the pop up and I opened the firebox door and still would, the, the pop was popping off at 200. And we're going to make the stop at South Deerfield and Frank Waters was trying to put the water into it and the injector wouldn't work. So uh, we had to stop that night. <laughs> it was a flag stop ordinarily, but we had to stop that night. And leaving South Deerfield, he wrapped it right out of town, and the steam stayed right up there, the firebox door opened, and he wound the water pump on, and the steam stayed up there, and the water kept disappearing. So as we approached Whateley, I grabbed the shaking lever and undogged the, the grates, and I said, dump it, Frank. He said, no. He said, wait a minute. So he tried the injector, the water pump was on, and then the water was just bobbing in the glass, and we got to North Hatfield. I said, dump it, Frank. No, just wait a minute now. Kept on trying, but the pop was not up, so it wasn't wasting water that way. But anyways, he says, when we get over the glass crossing at North Hatfield, dump it. So the minute the last, I got up the front end of the engine, got on the last crossing, I was off shaking them levers, getting the, the dumping the fire in the ash pan. And we stopped quite a ways away from the telephone and clear of the crossings. And we went to work, or Frank went to work, trying to find out why he couldn't get any water. And he was looking to see if the hoses connected to the water supply and the tender to the pump and the and injector was all right. And finally, he says, well, while we were sitting there, the water pump was running. And once in a while, we'd get a pulsation out of it. And the water was just out of sight in the glass, so it, was, it wasn't particularly dangerous, only you, you wouldn't want to go that way very long. Well, we sat there something like 40 minutes and we got a, about a third of a glass of water. And he says to me, what do you say, Mac? Uh, are you all set? And I says, well, I don't know. Uh, he says, let's see if we can get it into Northampton and get another engine. And he says, take a look at the crown sheet. See if everything's in all right in the firebox. And if it is, spread your fire around. He says, don't, take, don't hurry a bit. He says, we've got all the time in the world. He says... There's something wrong with it somewhere, but he says they, they got him right with the hair that's short, and he says they can't say a word. So 
I lighted a fusee and threw it in on top of the arch and looked that lit up the inside the firebox so you see the crown sheet and the flu sheet. And there was no leaks anywhere, and I took the hook and spread the fire around and put a shovel of coal or two in and turned the blower on. And pretty soon the steam started coming back up again. And I got about 180 pounds, and he says, are you all ready? I Yep. So we had hardly started moving, and the water pump went to work. And as we approached the Laurel Park curve, he says, what are you saying, Mac? He says, should we try to sprinkle? I says, I'd rather not. Well, he had no more got the words out of his mouth, and the water pump pulsations on the gauge stopped working. So he was to hang with it. So he stopped clear to the crossing at Northampton Damon Road Cross and stopped clear of the crossing with the train. And we cut off and went in the yard and got 3629, which was in there, and left that one. And they sent a man down from East Deerfield, an engine house man, to see if they could find out what was wrong with it. And they injected, which is un almost unheard of, as far as I know. Uh, Never, I have almost never failed. Uh, this injector is given out and broken apart in the combining tube so it would not lift the water to put it into water. And the pump line, no one knows they ever did find out what was wrong with that. So that was quite some experience, I must say. One of the periods when I couldn't hold 73 and 728 as a fireman, I went back, I went out of the night freight, and this particular time was in the uh, winter of 45 and 46, and I have a day here, 1-16-46, on JS-4, leaving White River. We had the 4101 as an engine, and it was a, a lot of snow. We were late leaving, and we got to Bellows Falls, and always the first thing you did was take water, then pick up your train, and your pickup after that. But this particular night, 4101, we couldn't reverse it. We uh, only got the Bell's Falls, and the rubber boot engineer uh, I had, he was, uh, he went out with some oily rags and tried to put some heat under the air motor. So in the process, what they usually do did was put kerosene on the rags, set the rags on fire to loosen up the oil, and the, anything like that. Well, what he did, he got the he got the oily rags involved with his screw, which the air motor turned to make the engine go forward and reverse. And then he come back in and operated the reverse and wound the rags up in the in the screw. Or if somebody else had done it ahead of him, I don't know, I'm blaming him, but uh, nevertheless, he couldn't reverse the engine at Dallas Falls. And he fooled around, fooled around, finally he called, and they located the switcher in Dallas Falls, and they sent the switcher up after us, and the, the little switcher brought the, the engine down over the mountain track to Dallas Falls engine house, and they looked at the situation. And they decided they couldn't do anything with it. So it ended up that they gave us a 
a stoker fired K-8, which probably came in on the World Boston or Worcester job, but nevertheless, it was a real cold, cold night, and whether or not the engineer tried the injector on that engine, I don't know, but he just discovered down the line, after we left Ellis Falls, that all he had was the water pump, because uh, the injector was froze. I made a long trip, and of course a worrisome trip as far as I was concerned. I don't know about him, whether he ever had sense enough to worry or not, but it made an awful long trip to worrying whether that engine was, was going to be able to get water enough to carry it, or if that water system gave out, how you ever get water in the boiler. And I had many trips like that with him. There was another one, I have a date here, 2 the 2903, which is a Santa Fe-type engine, but it had an odd stoker, and the stoker engine was a was the duplex-type engine, which went by fits and starts, but it had a twin, it had a, an HT plate on it, which uh, meant that the coal come out of the plate intermittently, and the steam jet blew it into the firebox. But the, there was a, two engines that had a Munkle stoker on them like that. And the 2903 was one, was, which was a combination of two stokers, and the 2904, which had an, a standard stoker, uh, it was a regular stoker engine, but it had a standard plate on it, which uh, was common with the with the uh, with the Forest Alvin Berkshire type engine. This 2903. We're coming into Springfield late as usual, early in the morning, but it was getting way on in the in the in your 16-hour law. And he coming through Chickabee, couldn't get any water in the engine. So I opened the firebox door and let the the fire go back so it wouldn't waste the steam through his safety valve. And I got the shaker bar ready to dump it. Kept saying, dump it, dump it. No, no. Well, anyways, he finally got the the uh, injector to work just as we got this, the north yard board limit. In May, I have a date here, May 11th, 1946. I had this job in the coal shortage. They started using... Uh, FTD uh, freight diesels on 732, and the freight diesels were had no automatic controls on the coolings, so the, the firemen had to be in the cab. And they used two firemen, and I had this job for oh maybe probably a week or thereabouts until somebody else took it because of the coal shortage. Jobs were canceled. And uh, the uh, this particular day, 4203 was a FT and A and a B diesel with a stiff shackle which could not be uncoupled, and no steam plant to heat the train. So that was the way that they were running the bootlegger. They ran it that way for uh, approximately a month, I think, until the coal spike was settled, and they got coal back in quantities. I wasn't able to hold my favorite. 73 and 728 with Frank Waters with at this particular time 
uh, Waters was uh, getting around to retiring. He retired on his 65th birthday, on October 15, 1946. And I lost the job to somebody else, some senior man, uh, approximately, oh, I would think six weeks before he retired. And at the time, this particular story, I was uh, 925.46. I hired out 921.42, and my fourth year mechanical examination was due, and I'd been notified, and I was firing 703 and 74 for Ethan Clark, and it was my day to work, so I had to lay off that day in order to take my fourth year mechanical examination as an engineer. So I chose to drive to Greenfield and take that mechanical examination. And when I got there, the Greenfield office, I parked my car in the, it was a very, very warm day. And I parked my car in the, in the parking lot of the Greenfield office. And I walked, going up the stairs, and I met this fellow coming down who was supposed to take the examination with me. And I says to him, what do you say, uh, I don't remember his first name now, how about, uh, are you already? He said, no, he said, I just told him I couldn't take it. Uh, I'm giving up one chance to take it. So I said, come on, you've got nothing to lose. Give it a try. No, he wouldn't do it. So I, there I faced the examiner all by myself and had to answer all the questions. And there was something, and as I remember, something over 400 questions on the steam engine, uh, broken pipes and breakdowns and loose tires and poly compressors and I don't know what all else, but anyways, I went at the office, and Bill Holt was the examiner. He was an engineer off the Portland Division who got that job, and he says, uh, where are we taking? Uh, so we, we went in Mr. Gurley's office. He was the chief road farmer of engines, and Gurley says, sit right down there. I won't bother you. So there I was across the desk from Leo Gurley taking the fourth year mechanical examination between, uh, in front of Gurley and Holt, the Greenhorn, and the, uh, I was, of course, I'd studied it well, but uh, you know how tense you might be taking in front of two old-timers, you might say, but I get along pretty well. Come noontime, this was 8 o'clock in the morning, after four hours, he says, what do you say? Would you want a break for eat, to eat? And I said, I sure do. So I went uptown and uh, had a bite to eat and walked around and relaxed a little bit. In the afternoon, he, he sat out. He said, let's see if we can find a cooler place. And went out in, in my car underneath the trees there and I finished my examination in my car. And when he ever released me about 3.30 in the afternoon, he says, you made it. Now you can't imagine anybody any more jubilant person in all your life. And I sing, and I hooted, and I whistled, and I hollered all the way home from Greenfield. As it happened most winters, I wasn't able to hold the passenger trains that I wanted, but this particular time was uh, 11.26 to February 7th, 47th. 
I held the SU-1 JS-4. I'm not sure the symbols of the time might have been SJ-3, but I fired the job for my father-in-law. We had a 2904 for regular engine, except when they had to have it in for the monthly washout. And I had a, a nice winter that winter. We uh, would work, uh, take every uh, take a, one trip off every two weeks. Sometimes we took it together and sometimes not. And it was a much different than the year before when I had it with a man that told me about the blue steam. I had it about the same length of time with him. But that was an all-night session every night with him. And I laid off much more often with him when I worked with him because he did, wasn't an engineer to begin with and didn't know how to get over the road. So I, then when after February, February 747, I apparently bit off the Holyoke switcher, uh, steam switcher in the morning job, and because I was studying from my book for rules examination, and I have here on the 10th, April 10th, 1947, I passed the book of rules, uh, studied the rules, and then wrote them. Uh, every few days, I would go and write 40 or 50 rules, and I don't remember how many rules it must have been. And then in June 2nd, 1947, the first day the diesel switches came to Springfield. And we had, uh, they assigned three of the uh, 600 horsepower, 660 horsepower switches to Springfield in place of the steam. After having qualified, you have you take your chances, and of course, when they need you for an engineer. And the only steam that I ever ran on my own as an engineer, I had run steam numerous times with other engineers, but as an engineer on my own, and my own job, I caught SE1, which ran Springfield East Deerfield return to Springfield that night. I caught it. Uh, February 21, 48, and I had a fireman by the name of Small, uh, and I'm not sure whether he or the following trip I caught the, the 23rd of the same job with Bob Bitters, and neither one of them, one of them had been out alone once, and the other man had never been out alone, and there I was, acting engineer on a steam engine, on, with a passenger engine on a freight train, trying to tell him fireman straightened out and it uh, is a very peculiar feeling to have the blind leading the blind on July 1st 1948 they experimented with a 1500 horsepower engine the number was 1500 they just got it was it a 1500 alcohol single unit not capable of of multiple, multiple unit operation, and they were trying as an experiment to get mileage out of it by running it on 77, 728, SE1, and ES2. They would give it, so they were getting that 250, 125 twice, 250 miles plus 70 more miles. They were going to get uh, 
about 300 something miles a day out of it. But they didn't keep it on very long. Uh, as far as I can tell from my time book, it only ran, it only ran two trips, the first and the second. And on 728, I would handle the train, but it would not make speed uh, compared to a hand-fired steam engine. After above 40 miles an hour, every bit of it was hard work because they didn't have the moxie to get it up to 60 miles an hour. It was a, an engine was built for for heavy work, with full tires and full tonnage, but it would not make speed. And as far as I know, it just ran that short while. And then, at that time, I had uh, uh, owned 73 and 728 again. And uh, Walter McCormick was the engineer for a regular job, the last steam going north on the 15th of July 1948, had 36.90 and I am going north on 73. And then coming south, we had a 38.15 as the first trip. There was a short while around 1951 that we had, uh, not, pardon me, around 1950. About the month of June 1950, Van Gogh and Rustic 551 alcohol switcher was down in Springfield, Springfield East Deerfield and other George as well, I presume, out of East Deerfield, but it was running on a short passenger train from Greenfield to Springfield, and Springfield to Northampton, and Greenfield, and so forth. And we had it for about the month. It was a, I think the 1534 B&M 1534 went up north on the bank on a because they a steam heat plant, and this 551 did not have one, so they borrowed ours. And then at the same time, I was during the same period. I was firing a good deal of the time, a 724 of the train, 715 and 724 they called it, ran from Springfield to Greenfield, and Greenfield to Springfield, and Northampton, and Northampton to Springfield. And uh, we had all different kinds of some things on there for power. And I have a 1121-51-1530 engine, the number is a 1530, and we uh, it was the day before Thanksgiving, 1951, and we had extra cars that day, five coaches, and we ran into a car at North Hatfield and killed three people. And then on the 6th of December, the engineer died. He never get all, he, he brooded, he was a very compassionate man, you never know if he was around, but he was a very compassionate man, and he, he couldn't get over the fact that the poor kid that was in the accident never had a chance. During one of the coal strikes, this particular one is February 27, 1953, I couldn't even hold a switcher in Springfield. So out of desperation, I bumped onto a, I just placed onto a SJ-1. Many times when I was on a spare board and I caught that job with a steam engine, I, I thought that was really the cast question. And then later on, I kind of changed my mind, and after I'd been on this, on these passenger trains, I decided that the SJ-1, which was a, a day freight north one day and back the next, JS-2 the next day, I thought that was a, about as 
couple job. You stop and switch every pair of bars, and uh, the oldest man held it, and it was not my idea of a good job, particularly uh, without mentioning any names of the man I had as an engineer at that time. And there's another date I have here which was quite memorable. I was firing for Walter Kirby, uh, September 14, 1953, going north on 73, had double unit diesel. And when we got to uh, approaching Windsor, the flagman was out, stopped us. In his first day on the job, he'd been on our job for quite some while, and he was able to hold this job out of Windsor. So he bit it off, and it was his first day as flagman on that job. And they were going north, the Windsor local, they called it, Dallas Falls of Windsor, and they were going north, and they rented a flock of sheep at the south end of the bridge at Windsor. And uh, he killed some sheep, I so by the time we got the train stopped there around the north end of the bridge, just off the north end of the bridge, they cut the engine off and went into Windsor to get the section man to come out. And I don't know what they expected him to do, but they went in to get him. And the section man got on the engine and was sitting with his back up against the bulkhead, against the engine room compartment. The engine was headed south. And they were rounding a curve to the left where the engineer couldn't see well, and the fireman kept hollering, your train, your train, but the engineer had his head out the window. Didn't pay no attention to him. He ran into his own train, and he had his head out far enough so that his left shoulder was up against the window frame, and when they crashed, he almost went out into the river himself because they were right that close to the river. But they, when they crashed, it took the wheels out from under the diesel, so it was crippled and couldn't move. And they had to call a big hook out from White River to come down and pick it up and set some wheels under it so they get it back in. And when I got up there with Walter Kirby on 73, they just got the engine out of the way and, and they asked us to couple onto that train and push it into the sidetrack in Windsor so we could clear the main line and proceed about our business. I was set up as an engineer June 21, 54, and marked up on the spare board after having all those nice passenger jobs. It certainly was a big come down to have to sit home and wait for that telephone and then work all night or all day or all day and all night, to go out of town and stay for several days. It was a big, big come down. The setup didn't really mean, other than the glory of it, it was no, it was no easy job. And I was set up from June 21 to November 14th, and part of that time I had bid off a, a job that a man was off sick and nobody thought they Anybody, would, I would get it or thought he'd come right back to work, and I, I got all on an afternoon Holyoke switcher, and I held it for six or eight weeks, and uh, some of the other guys were very much put out to think that, that I had got it, and they were older than me on the spare board, but they 
didn't figure that he would ever get it, but I got it. But I got sent back in this uh, November 14th, and I was backfiring my regular favorite fashion job until the 3rd of January 1955. I got set up again and never got set back again. During my time firing with Walter McCormick, I had learned that gained quite a lot of experience. I run some steam for him, but when the diesels came in the middle of July, I got much more experience running the trains, and frequently uh, he would say to me on going north on 703 or 73, whichever it might be, how do you feel this morning? You feel awake, and he might feel a little bit sleepy and didn't want to trust himself. So uh, I was willing to run for the experience of the course, and, and then uh, I was in the habit, or he got in the habit of me running the engine southbound, White River to Springfield, except when I read the meters. Uh, from east north to the Greenfield, when the engines are working the hardest, is when you're supposed to read the meters, the oil pressures and the amp meters and so forth, temperatures. So I would run every day on 74, every day I worked, 74 from White River to East Northfield, and then he would run East Northfield to Greenfield, and I would run Greenfield to Springfield. So this particular day, it must have been on a Sunday, I assume, because we had an A and a B this day. And they uh, we were sitting at the, on the train at, Green, at North, at White River Junction. And I was looking back on the engineer's side. I was in the engineer's seat, and I was looking back on the engineer's side, and I saw Leo Gurley, our road foreman of engines, coming down the platform with his traveling bag. So I says to Walter Karmick, uh, here comes Leo Gurley, you better run your own engine. He says, you sit right where you are, I will take care of Mr. Gurley. Well, Gurley and I were always, I thought, pretty good friends. And uh, he and McCormick are always seemed to be good friends. So when Gurley got the engine, I took his bag and he up the ladder and Walter McCormick says, come on, Leo, sit right over here and... and uh, Enjoy yourself. So McCormick got up out of the fireman's seat and gave it to Gurley. And then he and McCormick sat in the middle seat in the freighter's engine. They had a middle seat. So I tried the brakes and did all the things an engineer ordinarily would do. And when it got time to go, got the motion the way I went. Coming down to the yard, you had to run carefully because of the hand-thrown switch in non-signal territory, and I was loafing down through the yard, and I loafed all the way out of White River and loafed all the way down to, to Windsor. And I had run into a job many times, and I knew where to loaf to kill time and where to make the time. And that's the way it went all the way down the line. And When I got to East Northfield, Leo, uh, I get out of the seat and I says to McCormick, there, engineer, see if you can do as well. 
Well, Leo Gurley thought that was a big joke, but I would say something like that to my engineer, and he ha ha about it. But when it come time to me to be set up or to catch a, a spare job as an engineer, Leo Gurley says, send him along, he's qualified. So that's how I became qualified without ever having a writer. The correction on one of our previous stories, I was set up June 21st, 54, and I was set back the 19th, uh, November 19th, 1954, and I was set back until April 30th, 1955, and then I got set up again in June 24th, 1955, and then never got set back after that. There's a rather memorable event that uh, still sticks to me quite vividly. On February 16th, 1958, I was going north as a spare engineer on SJ-1. We had the 1739, the 1743, and the 4265B unit. And as I remember, we had 96 cars going into White River. And it had been snowing all day. It was pretty tough going. So uh, Bob Perkins, one of the old brakemen, and as we were leaving Colmont Junction, he says, do you think we're going to make it, Mac? And I said, well, it's going to be nip and tuck, I would believe. And then after I'd gone downhill from Claremont Junction to Windsor, ordinarily you coast down there and have to break it possibly, I had to work eight notches all the way down the hill. And going through Windsor with plowing snow right over the top of the diesel. And as leaving Windsor going north, it's uphill there for two or three miles, possibly more from Windsor to the top of Heartland Hill. And he questioned me again, do you think we're going to make Heartland Hill? And I said, it's going to be awful close if we do. Well, nevertheless, we went over the top of the hill after a while. It's a difficult going, but we went along decently. And then going down the other side of the hill, down from Heartland to North Heartland into White River, it was tough going, of course, yet and on the approach to White River, the snow was possibly uh, a foot and a half, maybe two foot deep. And the pilots, the calculator, the pilot on the, on the EMD, the Bluebirds, were quite effective. About above 35, 40 miles an hour, the snow would plow in a V, and you could see well. But below that, it would just come straight up over the top and hit your windshield, and you couldn't see much. Approaching from the approach signal to the home signal on White River Junction, slightly upgrade and then a slightly downgrade, and I started braking, but not soon enough. Those cars were pushing, and the wheels were all snow, and the brake shoes were all snow. I put the brake on heavier and heavier. I see my estimation was we were not going to stop before we got to the home signal, but I thought, using good judgment, I would say, well, with the kind of weather there is, and cold as it was, why put in emergency and break in two and then have a mess? Now, other people have gone by that signal and I probably 
do the same. But whenever you went by the home signal, the front truck was headed up the main line towards the depot, another mile north. Number three wheel jumped the track at the switch and went on the ground. Number four wheel was on the rail headed for the yard, but number three wheels were on the ground. And there we were, standing still on the switch point with the one engine on the ground, 96 cars behind you, and nobody would make a decision. I asked the first my first thought after I got off and jumped in the snow, cleared my belly button, and back, cut the dead engine off, the derail engine off, and back up before the tracks got filled behind you, and come into the hand-thrown switch. And I suggested the brakeman notify the yard officer that effect, and the yard master replied, don't move until the car knocker gets here. Well, this was roughly, roughly 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and we sat there, and sat there, and at 6 o'clock, the car knocker showed up, and the first thing he said, we can't do a damn thing to get that engine out of the way, get that train out of the way. And I said, well, that's what I wanted to do three hours ago. Well, then it was up to me to go out and cut that engine off and cut all, close all the angle cocks and pull the plugs and take the EMU operation off of the head engine and cut in the second engine. Somebody had left the brake, the, the uh, cab door open on the second unit and the leading end of it, so the door was open and the snow was blowing in there and they had the seat and the engineer's control about two feet of snow on them. I had to shovel that out. And then got organized and I started backing up, backing the train up. And when the, while the brakeman cut the engine off, it was uphill, shoving 96 cars backwards. And it all snowed in for three hours. So I called the brakeman up and I asked him, when next time I get away from you, close the knuckles so he won't be making the hitch every time. I get a, maybe a foot and come back and make the hitch. And I get a foot and a half. And I finally I widened it so I got a, a, a probably a car length between them. And that, at that time, I backed that whole train up with only two units. So then, when we got them back over the hand-thrown switch, I asked the brakeman to cut them off, and when the section men got the switch shoveled out, we'd go in and break the track, and then pull the train in, the back pull the train in. Well, when we were, after we got the switch thrown and going into the yard, break the track, the running board, when the end, and neat, I was standing beside the engine. The running board would be approximately a head height. And when I was going in and breaking that track, the, water, the snow was coming over the running board on that engine. And we went in there and got the iron, the switches all lined up. And then I went out and back, got out the train. And naturally, having worked all day in the snow, the sanders would be all plugged up. I didn't even attempt to use them. I went 
got out the train and pumped it up and I started pulling them in as far as I go. Then I go back on the slack and I go a little bit farther and then I go back on the slack and finally I started moving them in into the yard and yarded the train and went to the house and the first thing the crew dispatcher says, train master wants to talk with you. So I call the dispatcher and two train master and he asked me what was the story and I told him that I run by the switch the switch evidently was moving when I went by it and I derailed and it was my fault nobody else's and I would take full responsibility so he says uh, well not much you can do about it now take get your rest next day I went down on JS4 and probably a week or so later I had just been called to go on 77 and Mr. Quillen the train master called me on the phone at home he wanted to know if I would like to change my story on a derailment White River and I replied no I had no reason to change it I was at fault I did it wrong well he says you know you might be disciplined for it and I said I'll have to take it if I do I am. Will you sell in the letter to that effect? And I said, absolutely. So I have a letter, and I still have possession of it, asking me to sign, take full responsibility for that derailment. And then a day or two later, I got a letter back from the superintendent saying, well, we feel that you did wrong. We are proud of the work. Or we, you... Uh, we feel you have done a good job for us. Therefore, please run according to signal indication hereafter. Don't let it happen again. During the flood of 1955, there was a... The rain was coming down quite steadily, and I was called a pilot, a B&A New York Central job from Springfield to Greenfield. And when I got to Greenfield, I was held to pilot one back. As I remember, leaving Greenfield was late in the evening, probably 10.30 thereabouts. And as I remember, I was on short time on account of the hours of service law, and I got into Springfield uh, just a few minutes before I outlawed, and I left the train down at the WA Tower. The engineer knew where the BNA engineer knew where he was. Well, what I started to say, and leaving Spring Greenfield, the rain was coming down, the water was gushing everywhere, and from Northampton, Greenfield, Northampton, it was nothing serious. From Northampton down, the water was gushing out of every place you could think of, and I didn't go along 60 miles an hour like the track was supposed to be good for, I went more careful. But anyway, it worked, turned out that I was the last train to come down over it until, and I think this was on a Friday night, and the following Thursday morning, quite early in the morning, I was called to take an extra freight, 125 cars, Springfield East Deerfield, running northward on the southbound track under pilot, uh, 
because the south the northbound track was unfit for service. The washout of Mount just below Mount Tom Junction from come down off of Mount Tom Reservation, it washed out both main lines just south of the present Mount Tom power plant to the depth of twenty five or thirty feet. So the tracks were hanging in the air there. Well I went up on that's the Roughly four days, that was out of service. The story was, if you wanted to work, or they were, everybody was supposed to, all the engineers and firemen were supposed to mark up all jobs to cancel out of Springfield, and anybody who wanted to work would mark up at East Deerfield, and they would run out of there. Well, the roads were in such condition, and the time it would take to go from all around the creation to get to East Deerfield, and the telephone was being out of service, I elected to stay home. Well, there was a union brotherhood rule that a switcher would be on duty 24 hours a day at Springfield Yard, and I was the only man available, so I would get called. They sent a man out to get me because my phone was out, and sent a man out to East Home Meadow to get me every morning, and I go in and report stay there at the engine house for eight hours and get paid for it. The other guys, they driving all around 50, 80 miles to find their ways around the, the washout conditions to get from Springfield area to, to East Deerfield area so they could work. I stayed home and worked every day. In connection with this flood that I just talked about, the B&A pilot job, uh, that was 8-18-55, and then the, uh, I, was, I told you I was working on the switcher, and then uh, at 8, uh, 8.22, was, I had the first freight up over there. I had a 4227A and B and a 4262A cab, and then there was numerous passenger extras running because of the, all scheduled trains were, were abolished for quite some while, but then they run numerous passenger trains as passenger extras. And then uh, I, there was a lot of a lot of uh, New Haven trains. Uh, they couldn't get over to to work the canal line from from uh, Holyoke to, to Westfield. Uh, they couldn't work the other end, so they had to run everything out of Westfield out of Holyoke to Westfield that way. And then they had a lot of trap rock trains. And I was called for numerous pilot jobs to get them trap rock trains up to Holyoke. Uh, he was being in the Haven would bring them to into West into Holyoke, and then I, the B and M would handle them from the connection from the Haven connection to Holyoke, and then to Springfield, and they would take them from there because they needed a lot of trap rock down below. On 9 15, 1955, I would call for an extra freight to White River. It was the CV train. The CV was unable to handle the train, so the Haven was bringing them into Springfield, and the VM was taking them to White River. And they called me, and we had a 4223A and B, and we had something like 86 cars, and uh, nonstop Springfield to White River, and our way up the line. It must have been Claremont Junction, probably. They gave the 4223 North a meet with a single-unit bud car, 
and 4223 take siding at Heartland. So we took the train north to and guided the CV, took the 4223 engine to the B&M house in West Lebanon for service while we had our dinner and got back on the engine and went back to the CV yard and they gave us 86 cars, 400 ton over tonnage. And Lloyd Kenyon was the conductor and he notified the dispatcher that this train is 400 ton over tonnage and the dispatcher says, take them. Well, anyways, we took them and we just squeaked over the top of Harlan Hill, but we had a meet on a single unit bud car north and the 4223 take siding. The 86 cars, 400 ton over ton, take siding for that single unit bud car. And we something like 300, 3 hours and 46 minutes, no, uh, 300, 3 hours and 43 minutes going north with a, with a mixed train, wherever they might have been. But this 400 ton over ton, 3 hours and 46 minutes, White River to Springfield, including the meet for that fashion train in in Highland, Vermont. We didn't usually get many meets or many trains like that. And when they got a train, a through train like that, you always thought that would be ideal because uh, ordinarily these all these trains stop and switch somewhere along the line. So. A through train was was something out of very very much out of the ordinary. After I'd been set up about five years, I was able to bid off SU1 JS4, which ran Monday, Wednesday, and Friday north, and Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday south. And then later on, they had added the sixth, the seventh day to it. And I can't remember particularly, but this one incident I'm speaking of, but I think it was a, uh, on a Saturday, but nevertheless, we left White River with a sizable train, and at Battleboro we got a much bigger train, and there was a washout, or a soggy track on the CV between Battleboro and East Northfield, so they give the train order to run south by a dull junction. Well, we had this big pickup, as they say, and we had to drag along to pick up the tail end crew. We left Brattleboro, they had uh, 143 cars. So it was kind of a struggle to get up out of the Brattleboro with these three units. And as we go along on the New Hampshire side, the uh, track running in a reverse direction, if you're not used to it, uh, it takes a little different operation, but there's nothing wrong. Only as we approach the backside of Vernon Dam, this reverse curves through some a cut there, and then you get to uh, Ford Hill siding, and then Ash Willett River Bridge, and then you're from probably about a mile from there to Dole Junction. Well, as we were going through the backside, through this cut, uh, I was working the engine to do capacity, and I was quite certain the train was all stretched, there was no slack in it. And when I got up in there, I, I got a rather uh, a sudden jerk, and I couldn't imagine what it was. 
I'll ease off a minute. Nothing happened until I give it back, give it the rest of the full throttle again. And there was no particular notice of, of the slowing down of the train of the kind. And all of a sudden, was a braking tool, or the air went, and naturally came to a stop. Well, when they stopped, the head end was pretty well down at Dole Junction, probably within 50 cars of Dole Junction, the, the approach light was visible, and the highway was up above through a kind of a swampy area, but the track set on a high fill. It was very difficult walking back to see what was wrong, but they finally they had to go. And it, had, it had been raining several days, and they finally come back. Had no radios, of course. They finally come back up and said that the tail end was on the ground. And then after a short while, the train master showed up up on the highway, and he didn't want to come down across the swampy area to get the track. So finally somebody had to go to him and it's a long while making any decisions. And he asked if we had loads ahead. Finally the decision was take 15 cars uh, and go to East Northfield. Our train order permitted it. When we went to East Northfield, we had got train orders issued for a work train. In the meantime, 79 was sitting at East Northfield. They couldn't go on north on the CV because of the washout on the track, and they couldn't go north on the B&M track because we were on it. So we got our train orders as a work train, and we backed up on the CV with our loads, shoving our loads north until we got to this area that the CV track men were trying to fix up. So they decided after we went across it three or four times with the loaded cars, not with the engine, but with the loaded cars, that they would permit it five miles an hour. So that then we went back to East North Hill. We get over on the on the Doe Junction side with our train and they let seventy nine go north. Then they told us to go back out of our train cut the rear car, the last rear car that was on the ground, and take whatever we had and go to East Deerfield with our train, without a caboose. And that's what we did. And the following day, I drove up in the afternoon to Amherst College, Amherst University of Mass, and picked up my son. And we drove up there and took a few pictures. And the first train came up over north. Uh, it was the 139th car of our 143. Jumped the track and I dragged it the whole length of a Fort Hill siding, which siding held 40 cars, so it was probably uh, 50, 60 car lengths long. We jumped the track just before we got to the switch and the car headed in towards the siding between the siding and the main line and plowed a furrow there about two and a half feet deep, just as nice as you ever see. And when that car hit the abutment of the Grass River Bridge, 
the trains when the train broke in two. And that tank car, a loaded tank car, went into the Asheville River, and nobody could find it. It was dark. They didn't know whether the train was the car was in the train when it left White River or not. But the following day, when they got daylight, they could see the mound of water over the top of the tank car. It was high water in the river. They could see the mound of water going over the tank car. And that tank stayed there from April until sometime. And then they sold the car to a, a junkie, and he cut it up right there in the river and hauled it away. That wraps up this week's episode of High Green. If you'd like to be on the show or know somebody who might have some interesting stories about the Boston and Maine Railroad or its legacy, please reach out to us. You can email us at bmrrhs at gmail.com or send us a message right on Facebook 